This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Hello, everybody. It's great to have you with us again. I'm going to get into a little bit about this Rand Paul-Dr. Fauci exchange that occurred earlier this week, because I really want you to be able to hear some of this audio. I know everybody's lives are very busy. It's sometimes very difficult to listen to long clips of interactions on Capitol Hill, and most of us don't really do that very much. If there was one that was just kind of standing out as an issue that grabbed our attention, we might do it. But I recognize the news flow is like a fire hose if you open up the internet and if you turn on the TV. So I want to spend some time on this. You might recall that several months ago, I had done a whole show on this Nicholas Wade piece on medium.com. He's a former New York Times science writer, not a conservative. And he did just an incredibly great piece on the fact that this looks like it was a lab leak in terms of the COVID-19 pandemic. This looks like a lab leak. They've been saying all along that it couldn't possibly have come from a lab, but there's no other reasonable explanation because the other explanations that have been put out there have been refuted. There's no way it could have occurred any other way. Now, that doesn't mean that at this juncture, they have definitively proven that the COVID-19 virus leaked from Wuhan lab, but it makes sense for a lot of reasons. And you can go back and you can read that piece on the internet when you have time. And I suggest that you do, because if you're really to understand this entire pandemic and what transpired during the course of the last year and a half, you need to understand the timeline. And you can't get that in a five second soundbite. At any rate, Rand Paul, the senator from Kentucky, has been great. Absolutely A plus digging into Dr. Fauci. And of course, he's a medical doctor himself, practice ophthalmology, but he's a medical doctor. So he knows whereof he speaks, unlike people who are in Congress or in the Senate, House or Senate, who are not MDs. I'm not saying that somebody who isn't an MD couldn't understand this information. Clearly you can, but he has more credibility because he's a doctor, which you know, Dr. Fauci doesn't hold the same credentials. He's a bureaucrat. He's the top paid bureaucrat in the U.S. government. So despite all of the wonderful efforts by Marjorie Taylor Greene and others to try to fire Fauci, it hasn't happened yet. And I don't think most of us have any hope that he will be fired. But I do like what Rand Paul did. You heard now that he is going to be seeking criminal action against Dr. Fauci for lying to Congress. Now, this is not the first time that Rand Paul has brought up the fact that he believes Dr. Fauci lied before Congress, which is a crime. It's a felony. I don't necessarily think anything will come of it, but I'm glad he's making the effort because it's the right thing to do. Of course, it's the right thing to do. This guy, Dr. Fauci, is in very deep trouble with the people who see what is going on. And this goes back to the central issue that Nicholas Wade was emphasizing in his piece and it was not just the fact that the Wuhan lab probably was the source for the for the coronavirus in the first place, but also that the US government via Dr. Anthony Fauci and Dr. Francis Collins 
funded the Wuhan lab, specifically its gain of function research in which you take a coronavirus and you mess with it and you study it to try to head off supposedly the next pandemic. And this looks like it was just messed up and we don't know all the details because Dr. Xi, you know, the Wuhan bat lady, uh, her records have been sealed. How convenient. At any rate, I want you to listen first to this question by Rand Paul. I know it's going to be lengthy, but I want you to listen to the whole thing because Rand Paul lays out this most important question about Fauci's role in funding gain-of-function research when they weren't supposed to be doing it. So listen first to cut one. Dr. Fauci, as you are aware, it is a crime to lie to Congress. Section 1001 of the U.S. Criminal Code creates a felony and a five-year penalty for lying to Congress. On your last trip to our committee on May 11th, you stated that the NIH has not ever and does not now fund gain-of-function research in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And yet, gain-of-function research was done entirely in the Wuhan Institute by Dr. Xi, and was funded by the NIH. I'd like to ask unanimous consent to insert into the record the Wuhan virology paper entitled Discovery of a Rich Gene Pool of Bat SARS-Related Coronaviruses. Please deliver a copy of the journal article to Dr. Fauci. In this paper, Dr. Xi credits the NIH and lists the actual number of the grant that she was given by the NIH. In this paper, she took two bat coronavirus genes, spike genes, and combined them with a SARS-related backbone to create new viruses that are not found in nature. These lab-created viruses were then shown to replicate in humans. These experiments combine genetic information from different coronaviruses that infect animals, but not humans, to create novel artificial viruses able to infect human cells. Viruses that in nature only infect animals were manipulated in the Wuhan lab to gain the function of infecting humans. This research fits the definition of the research that the NIH said was subject to the pause in 2014 to 2017, a pause in funding on gain of function. But the NIH failed to recognize this, defines it away, and it never came under any scrutiny. Dr. Richard E. Bright, a molecular biologist from Rutgers, described this research in Wuhan as, the Wuhan lab used NIH funding to construct novel chimeric SARS-related coronaviruses able to infect human cells and laboratory animals. This is high-risk research that creates new potential pandemic pathogens, potential pandemic pathogens that exist only in the lab, not in nature. This research matches, these are Dr. Ebright's words, this research matches, indeed epitomizes, the definition of -of gain-of-function research done entirely in Wuhan, for which there was supposed to be a federal pause. Dr. Fauci, knowing that it is a crime to lie to Congress, do you wish to retract your statement of May 11th where you claimed that the NIH never funded gain-of-function research in Wuhan? Now, that's a great setup, if ever there were a great setup. Now, listen to Fauci's response. Cut to. Senator Paul, I have never lied before the Congress, and I do not retract that statement. This paper that you are referring to 
was judged by qualified staff up and down the chain as not being gain of function. So what was, let me take, finish. You take an animal virus and you increase its yeah. transmissibility to humans, right. you're saying that's not gain of function? Yeah, that is correct. And, and Senator Paul, you do not know what you are talking about, quite frankly. And I want to say that officially. You do not know what you are talking about. Let's okay, you get NIH. one person. Let's read from the NIH definition of gain of function. This is your definition that you guys wrote. It says that scientific research that increases the transmissibility among mammals is gain of function. They took animal viruses that only occur in animals and they increased their transmissibility to humans. How you can say that is not gain of function. It is not. It's a dance, and you're dancing around this because you're trying to obscure responsibility for 4 million people dying around the okay. world from a pandemic. Ooh, zinger. You know, that's really what it's all about, and it makes my head spin to think how quickly the left would be all over this guy if he were on the right. Think about that for a moment. How quickly would they try to get his head on a platter and get him thrown out of the U.S. government if he had been on the right? And I'm sure they would probably go after you know everybody and their dog who were associated with Dr. Fauci as well, because that's what the left does. This is very, very, very big, because when Dr. Fauci is saying that's not gain-of-function research, did you note how he was making an appeal to authority as his defense? In other words, he was pointing to the fact that it went up and down the line and people agreed that this wasn't gain-of-function research. That has nothing to do with the facts, the facts that Rand Paul laid out, that, of course, this was gain-of-function research. That's exactly what it was. And even Dr. Fauci himself has agreed with that definition. You can see it on video and in print. It's incredible. And there's more. We're going to take a pause. We'll come back on Janet Meffer today. Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? Do you pay more than $399 a month? Yes, you can serve the entire family with health care for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org JMT. When an abortion-minded woman walks into a preborn center, it is a divine appointment. It's where she encounters the love of Jesus Christ and has the opportunity to meet the beautiful life growing inside of her and find out that every baby's life matters. I got to hear how strong her heartbeat was. I was like, I felt like she was supposed to be here. And it didn't matter what anybody else told me. 
And all that mattered was that I was blessed with the ability to carry life inside of my body. And that baby was supposed to be here for something. And that was all that mattered. 80% of women in crisis pregnancies choose life after meeting their babies on ultrasound. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. Would you join with Preborn and Janet Mefford today? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies' lives. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your donation goes towards saving babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, this is very interesting. Senator Rand Paul is really wanting Dr. Fauci to be held responsible, not just for this funding of -of gain-of-function research in the Wuhan lab that led to the pandemic. Allegedly, they haven't definitively proven that the virus leaked from the lab, but It's kind of obvious that that's probably where it came from, but I just want to be careful and not not overstating the case. And now, after what Rand Paul went through with Dr. Fauci this week, earlier this week, we're listening to some of these cuts. He is now asking for a criminal referral from the Department of Justice to go after Dr. Fauci legally on the allegation that he has been lying to Congress. And it's not the first time that he's accused Dr. Fauci of lying to Congress. Uh, this this is really interesting because they were going back and forth and Senator Paul was saying, you know, this was gain of function research. You guys funded it. You weren't supposed to be funding it. There was a federal pause on any NIH funding of gain of function research. You guys made an exception and, and you funded it. And it actually it went to the Eco Health Alliance. It was one of those Soros type deals where Open Society Foundations doesn't necessarily directly fund it, but they give it to somebody who then gives it to somebody. That's what happened here. It went to this a DASIC guy who ended up, you know, funding the research there. But that's where the money came from was the NIH. And DASIC then was put on the team that was looking into uh, the Wuhan lab situation and came away going, oh, there's no problem here. Well, that's it's sleazy. The whole thing is sleazy. And besides, if this guy really does bear responsibility in any serious way for having a hand in the tragedy of the COVID-19 pandemic that went worldwide and has cost millions of lives. Why would he sit before Congress and go, you know what? You're right. (laughs) I did it. If he were actually responsible for funding the gain of function research that led to the creation of COVID-19 that then was leaked from a lab. Do you think that Dr. Fauci should be held responsible for that? I said back in May, not just Fauci, but Francis Collins, they ought to be fired right away and investigated. These guys need to be investigated. The fact that he's now on the record sitting before Congress and lying is actually a good thing. Not only lying, but shaking and getting testy and angry and getting personal. That's what people do who are just getting a little bit worried. That's just how it goes. Somebody who has nothing to hide isn't going to act like that. They'll be forthright. They'll tell the truth. They'll be very, very blunt about the facts because they don't have any reason to lie. They don't have any reason to be nervous. Mm, If you watch that video of Dr. Fauci, it'd be hard to put him in that category. Let's go on. One more cut here. This is Dr. Fauci responding yet again to Senator Rand Paul. Cut three. Well, now you're getting into something. If the point that you are making is that the, the, the grant that was funded as a sub-award from EcoHealth to Wuhan created SARS-CoV-2. That's where you are getting. 
Let me finish. We don't know. Well, we don't wait know a minute. It did I come can the lab, but all you. the evidence is pointing that it came from the lab. You, and there will be responsibility for those who funded the lab, including yourself. I totally. This committee resent, will allow the witness to. Respond. I totally resent the lie that you are now propagating, Senator, because if you look at the viruses that were used in the experiments that were given in the annual reports that were published in the literature, it is molecularly impossible. No one's saying those it, viruses it is, caused it. It no is, one is molecularly. That those virus caused the pandemic. What we're alleging is that gain of function research was going on in that lab and NIH funded it. That you is can't not. Get away from it. It meets your definition and you are obfuscating the truth. I'm not obfuscating the truth. Senator you are the one. I'm I want everyone to understand that if you look at those viruses, and that's judged by qualified virologists and evolutionary biologists. Those viruses are molecularly impossible no one's to result they are. No in SARS-CoV-2. We're saying they are gain-of-function viruses because they were they're animal not. viruses that became more transmissible in human, and you funded it. And you, you admit the truth. And, and you are implying that what we did was responsible for the deaths of individual. I totally resent and that. Have and if anybody and is lying been. here, Senator, it is you. Getting awfully testy. See, I think what Senator Paul was doing there was quite brilliant because he was sticking to a very narrow category of true or false. He was saying, you guys funded through the NIH gain-of-function research. He was not going on to say, as you just heard, Therefore, because we believe the virus leaked from the Wuhan lab, which is the most likely scenario, you probably caused the pandemic. He doesn't say that. He's sticking to a very narrow swath of what is important, and that is establishing a very basic fact that the NIH funded gain of function, and that was what went on in that lab. He can't even admit to that. Now, let's go back to some of these other stories. Because this is important. This is going back again with Nicholas Wade, who wrote that important piece back in May. And this was via a website that recounted what had happened. This is a website called Independent Sentinel. Nicholas Wade, the former New York Times science editor, was asked about the brouhaha over Dr. Fauci. This was back in May. And he said, I was just perplexed. It just seems clear that these experiments would have enhanced the virulence of a natural pathogen. And that's the definition of gaining function. It's very broad. So how Fauci can say he didn't fund such work is a puzzle to me. Uh, Yeah. Going back to his article, it said the moratorium that was put in place on, on gain of function research funding at the NIH They say, he said, actually, the moratorium specifically barred funding any gain of function research that increased the pathogenicity of the flu, MERS or SARS viruses. But then a footnote on page two of the moratorium document states that an exception from the research pause may be obtained if the head of the USG funding agency determines that the research is urgently necessary to protect the public health or national security. Wade said this seems to mean that either the director of the NIAID, Dr. Anthony Fauci, or the director of the NIH, Dr. Francis Collins, or maybe both, would have invoked the footnote in order to keep the money flowing to Dr. Xi's gain of function research. Unfortunately, Dr. Richard Ebright pointed out, and he was quoted as a source there by uh, Senator Paul, 
Unfortunately, both of these guys exploited this loophole to issue exemptions to projects subject to the pause, preposterously asserting the exempted research was urgently necessary to protect public health or national security, thereby nullifying the pause. When the moratorium was ended in 2017, it didn't just vanish. It was replaced by the potential pandemic pathogens control and oversight framework, which required agencies to report for review any dangerous gain-of-function work they wish to fund. And according to Dr. Ebright, both Dr. Collins and Dr. Fauci have declined to flag and forward proposals for risk-benefit review, thereby nullifying the P3CO framework. I know this is a lot, but basically what they're saying is these guys had some hand in pausing the ban on funding gain-of-function research and put it in the category of protecting public health and safety urgently. Why would they do that? I don't know. This is why we have to investigate them. Now, you go back to another story in May from The Federalist, and this is very interesting because at the same in the same month, the Wall Street Journal published a story of three researchers at the Wuhan Institute of Virology who were hospitalized with COVID-like symptoms in November of 2019, preceding the pandemic's first outbreak. The lab, known for its relaxed safety protocols, they say, was reportedly collaborating with the Chinese military and conducting gain-of-function research into bat coronaviruses, according to the Trump State Department, in a fact sheet not disputed by officials in the Biden administration. Two years after Fauci's defense of the high-stakes research, defense, the U.S. government deemed the work so dangerous that it was banned. So this explains the pause. According to longtime journalist Nicholas Wade, However, Fauci circumvented the moratorium and supported gain of function with grant money from the NIAID funneled through EcoHealth Alliance operated by Dr. Peter Daszak. Now, what will happen from here? There needs to be a gigantic investigation. This is a potential nuclear bomb. It really is. Because if they can definitively show that in fact the COVID-19 coronavirus did leak from that lab and the U.S. government had some role in funding the research that led to that, who in the world who's being absolutely honest and forthright could deny the fact that Fauci and or Collins or maybe both had a hand in those deaths, in those sicknesses, in all the lockdowns, in all the nonsense. And this is the same guy who from the beginning of the pandemic has been the flip-flopper of all time. Oh, we all know masks don't work. You don't have to wear a mask. That's not going to make any difference unless you have symptoms, you know, no need to wear masks. Oh, we should wear masks. In fact, now he's talking about kids as young as three should wear masks. What are you talking about? You were the guy who was sitting in the baseball stands with no mask, yucking it up with your friends while everybody else was wearing their masks and, you know, suffering through having to wear those things in every setting possible, little kids having to wear it in school, even though little kids are at virtually no risk of having COVID-19 become a serious issue. And all these kids, oh yeah, put the masks on the kids. And then, you know, and you catch him in what he said last time is, hey, wait a minute, you said this before. Oh, well, I mean, I didn't really say that. I mean, I said this. We all know the flip-flops of Fauci. Do you trust Fauci? Do you look at that man and say, now this guy has been consistent and been a terrific leader during the course of the pandemic? Or do you think that this guy, his time is kind of up in terms of credibility?
I think his time has been up in terms of his credibility for quite some time. But what is important about this is that the American people need to get behind Rand Paul. I don't care if you're left, right, in the middle, or have never voted in your life. You need to see this as an issue that is very important because it gets to the heart of what caused the pandemic and the role, potential role of the U.S. government in having helped it along. There is a lot, I believe, that we still don't know about the origins of this pandemic. There are many people with a lot of questions about why this happened, how it happened, and all the rest. And I say, dig, dig, dig until you find out what really happened. Thank the Lord for Senator Rand Paul. He's doing a great job. This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, that is a very high calling, and it's one that many Christian men today not only fail to do to some degree, but can really fail to understand in the first place. What duties does a Christian husband have toward his wife? Well, we're going to be talking about it today with J. Aaron White. He has served in vocational ministry for more than 10 years as a senior pastor, associate pastor, and worship director. And he is out with a new book. We'll be talking about man up, kneel down, shepherding your wife toward greater joy in Jesus. Aaron, welcome. It's great to have you with us. Hi, Janet. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Sure thing. Well, when you speak about shepherding your wife, I was just picturing the feminists all going nuts and say, shepherding your wife, what is that all about? But (laughs) what would you say about that word in particular? What does it mean? We talk about a pastor shepherding his flock, obviously, but in the context of marriage, how does that term apply? Well, that's a fair assessment in our cultural moment. And I, I guess I took that into consideration a little bit, but it's such a wonderfully biblical term. Um, and, and even the verb, you know, to shepherd, you know, to nurture, to care for, to watch over, uh, it seems to me like an apt way to describe what I see in Ephesians 5, where a, a Christ-centered husband wants to do for his wife. So I chose to use it, and uh, so far so good. You know, no one's popped my tires or burned my house. (laughs) That's good. Well, I like the term. I think it's perfectly biblical and good. But when you talk about the confusion in our culture over manhood, I think this is something that really does need to be discussed a little bit because you emphasize the importance of Christian character and what the basic Christian character of Christian husbands needs to be. What sorts of traits would you say are important for Christian husbands to have as believers and disciples of Jesus Christ, first and foremost, before we ever get to the shepherding part. Yeah, and in my book, I have a whole chapter where we kind of unpack the qualifications of an elder from 1 Timothy 3, and I kind of give a caveat that I've given to a lot of guys that I've discipled as a pastor, and probably will have the same conversation with my sons. I have four boys, one girl. Nice. Um, And really, honestly, I wrote the book with my boys in mind, thinking even if no one else reads the book, at least my boys can have this. Um, and these are things that I would counsel them on if we could fast forward 20 years down the road. 
Um, but I would want them to go to First Timothy 3. I want them to look at the qualifications of an elder, and I would say, even if you don't aspire to use the verbiage of Paul, none of these qualifications are egregious for any Christian man. This is normal, normal Christian living for any man of God, um, even if you don't aspire to be an elder. And so I just walked my readers through those qualifications to say, let's look at our own lives, to say, are we above reproach? Are we the husband of one wife in terms of, you know, how we live our lives, also how we think in our minds? Are we lovers of money? Are we gentle, not quarrelsome? Are we addicted to, to alcohol? I mean, to all of these things. And just wanted to kind of get the proverbial log out of our eyes before we try to get the speck out of another's. Yeah, that's great. Well, what you're really saying, and I think the qualifications of elders listed in 1 Timothy 3 really point to godliness. You should be a godly man. How in the world are you to shepherd your wife or anybody else, for that matter, if you're a pastor to your congregation, if you are not fundamentally a godly man? And that doesn't seem to be discussed maybe as much as it needs to be in the church today, I don't think. We talk about a lot of things, but godliness doesn't often come up as the the, the main thrust of what we're trying to teach you know, Christians who are sitting there in the churches week after week. Maybe it's different where certain listeners are, but godliness, I think, is very much in need of being emphasized. Well, absolutely. I think it was Robert Murray McShane, and if I get my quotes wrong, forgive me, um, but I think it was McShane who said, the, the greatest need that my congregation has is my personal holiness. Good. And so I, I didn't want my readers to, to get just beat over the head. I mean, certainly all of that call to holiness is a call to delight yourself in the Lord. It's a call to grace-empowered action. Um, but, you know, I did want to give a strident call, not only in that chapter on the qualifications, but also toward the introduction. Um, and that was actually at the behest of my publisher. To their credit, Shepherd Press came back and said, hey, we'd love for you to write kind of a, a direct call to men in the introduction to the book and just kind of lay out... A, a loving, pastoral, but firm call to, to man up and nail down to, to shepherd your families. That's and cool. so I feel like we had a real partnership with Shepherd Press and kind of the aim of the book to basically come alongside Christian men, you know, through the pages of the book to offer theologically sound, gospel-centered, but very, very practical counsel on not just knowing what Ephesians 5 says, we hear it at almost every wedding. Yes. I know husbands love your wives, Christ love the church, but what does that look like in practice? And so believe me, it was a humbling thing to write a book like this. I went to my wife first and said, do I have your permission to publish this? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was nice of her to tell her, tell you yes. That one, she's very nice, obviously. <laughs> yes, yeah, she allowed me to, to kiss her signet ring and she gave me her blessing. There so, you go. <laughs> off we go. Well, one of the things you mentioned, for example, in First Peter 3, 7, uh, you know, it advocates this concept of living with your wife in an understanding way. And, you know, that is very important. And I do feel for men in a lot of ways because, who can really totally figure out women. Even women can't totally figure out women. But you talk about, you know, studying your wife, serving your wife, enjoying your wife, studying your wife. What kind of advice would you give to Christian men on studying their wives to try to get to know them better in this whole context of shepherding? Well, yeah, you mentioned First Peter 3. And I remember looking at that text when I was preaching through First Peter and coming to this whole uh, passage on, you know, husbands live with your wives in an understanding way or maybe a a better translation would be live with her with knowledge. Yeah. And just trying to understand, A, you know, interpretively, what does that mean? How would I preach that? What is Peter saying? Um, and I don't, I don't want to press the interpretation too hard, but it seems that he's saying not only, you know, 
live with her in an understanding way in terms of showing grace as, you know, a co-heir of the grace of life and being gentle with her, but also knowing her intimately, knowing who she is, knowing how she's wired. Um, and so I wanted to kind of pull that apart in that chapter to say, husbands, study your wives. Don't don't grow weary in the task of getting to know her. And I, I've been married now for almost 17 years. I have five children. I have a minivan. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um and I love it. I, I absolutely love, love, love being married. I, I've known my wife since eighth grade. That's incredible. And we were both saved by God's grace as undergraduate students. And we've grown, you know, kind of lockstep since that time. And so I, I want to take my own advice to say it's easy to get complacent sometimes, especially when things are, are healthy and good, to kind of stop learning and living with her in an understanding way. But uh, I, I took Peter's call in First Peter 3 to say, know her, get to know her intimately. Like my wife, for example, she has scoliosis. She has metal rods in her back. And I'm the only man in the room who knows that if she sits for more than two or three hours that she's going to need help getting up because her, her hip gives out mm. because of the pressure on her disc. Yeah. So intuitively, I stick my hand out and I help her stand up. And just little things to let her know that out of all the ladies in the room, some of whom are my sisters in Christ, some of whom I'm you know, I'm concerned for their souls, but you're, you are my special one. You're my beloved. And I know I'm going to care for you. That's really nice. That's wonderful. And and there's so many other applications, obviously, about studying your wife, because, well, you know, I've been married a long time as well. And, and there are new things you learn about your spouse. It's not as if you're married five years and you've got it all down because people are not static that way. You might know your part, you, you know, your spouse's temperament and personality and things like that. But you need to stay in touch with one another. And especially when the husband is trying to have this kind of a spiritual care for his wife, you have to know what's going on in her life, too and the way she's thinking and feeling and all in that context of what kind of person she is. Yeah, and I think that's probably one of the biggest things for me in writing the book, um, in addition to wanting to counsel men in the church, uh, my own sons, kind of proverbially as we look down the road as they get older, but but also, you know, this idea that we're, we're growing old together. We're co-heirs of the grace of life. And when we were first married, my wife's name is Tanya, we were first newly married, and we wandered into a little Baptist church. We weren't there long because career and, and life took us elsewhere. But I, I don't remember what the sermon was about, to my chagrin, but I do remember one line. And the pastor said, um, gentlemen, that lady sitting next to you is going to help you die one day. Mm. And so I, again, I don't remember the context of the sermon. It, it, may have been, it may have been a great sermon. It may have not been. But I remember that line hit me as a young husband. And... And I think texts like Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3 and even Hebrews 3, where we're to exhort one another every day yeah. uh, as, as a means of persevering, you know, I, I, it so really important. helped shake my view that yeah. this is my wife. For my sure. Life. Yeah, Aaron, hang on. We'll be right back with Aaron White. This is Janet Mefford. We're partnering with Bible League International to send God's word to 1,500 Bibleist believers in Africa, in many parts of countries like Kenya, Tanzania, Ghana, and Mozambique. As many as nine out of 10 Christians are denied God's word because of corrupt governments, majority religions, remoteness, and poverty. They've never been able to read 1 Peter 5, 7, cast your cares on him for he cares for you. Reading that promise of God means everything to you and me. And now it will 
will mean so much to these Bibleist Christians in Africa when you respond. Here's Pastor John in Mozambique. One occasion, I find a pastor that was leading a church of 90 church members. And he was having one Bible that was starting from Exodus and ends to the Ephesians. And he was leading the church with that Bible. So when we went to give them the Bible, imagine joy. They sang, they danced, they cried, and they praised God for the gift of the Bible. $5 sends one Bible, $100 sends 20, $500 sends 100, and your gift of any size will help us meet our goal of sending 1,500 Bibles to Africa. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D, or there's an Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Actually, the, the need is great. If you could remember the other picture of a lady who was trying to show me the Bible that Pastor, I understand you work with Bible, but we don't have Bibles here. So that, that, that lady had a Bible from Exodus to the book of Hebrews. That's all. You see that? So there is a great need of Bibles. Send God's word to a Bibleist believer in Africa today for only $5. Call 800-YESWORD. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Great to have you with us. Aaron White is joining us talking about his book, Man Up, Kneel Down, Shepherding Your Wife Toward Greater Joy in Jesus. And you were sharing the story, Aaron, before we went to break about going into the Little Baptist Church and being reminded of this idea that, you know, you're you're there with your wife till death do you part and she's going to be there when you die or the other way around. That, that, that really kind of puts the end in perspective, doesn't it? What marriage is really about. You're moving toward the end of your life. And then when you realize your eternal life in Christ and heaven, then and it's, you know, you're going to be home, but it's it's a very significant thing to be reminded of that. Yeah, absolutely. And you had mentioned, you know, First Peter 3 and, and living with your wife in an understanding way is a co-heir of the grace of life. And that little, little Baptist church and that little single soundbite from that sermon really helped kind of get my mind set on the reality that she's my wife, but she's also my sister in Christ. Yes. And I need means of grace in my life to help me fight the good fight or win the race. And one of those means is my spouse, to, to see her as a sister in Christ, to be concerned for her soul, to, when I see her languishing or her faith is weak, to, to find ways to exhort her and point her to Christ. And just having that category in my brain that this is my wife, it's the mother of my children, she's also my sister in Christ, and right. I want her to run well. Perfect. And I don't know, that was just a very helpful category for me, and I have that in the book for that reason, for guys to look at her and say, she's also my sister in Christ, and I want to be a means of grace to help her run. That's great. That's it's exactly how it needs to be regarded. Now, when you're talking about all the different ways that you discuss in the book of how to shepherd your wife, one of the things you talk about is leading her. And obviously, in the modern context, there are a lot of women who, oh, you know, well, I don't need a man telling me what to do and this kind of thing. The original sin of Eve, you know, <laughs> we run into that. And, and it's hard sometimes, I think, because we do live in a society that is very much about equality, equality, and it does affect Christians as well. But how should we think biblically about the role of the husband leading the wife? Because scripture does not change just because society changes. Oh, absolutely. And and we all have to be mindful of the Adamic, you know, sinful tendencies on 
a man's part going all the way back to the fall in the garden that we either are overbearing and use our strength in, in violent and un- inappropriate ways, or we shirk our responsibilities and we hurt our wives by being too passive and apathetic. Just like women and daughters of Eve have to be mindful of not, you know, usurping authority or manipulating. Uh, so we all, you know, have to be mindful of, of putting those kind of native sins to death. But short of that, the biblical witness is one of, you know, love your wife as Christ loved the church. To lead her it, it certainly is not in a heavy-handed way. It's it, it, what I want from my boys, if I were to sit down with my sons, if they were adults, I would say, son, delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in Christ personally, such that the overflow of joy in the Lord in your life makes it relatively easy for her to follow your lead. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, if you're if you're if you're not pursuing the qualifications of First Timothy three, you're not delighting yourself in the Lord and being heavy-handed or you're being apathetic. Yeah, that is that is going to draw her back to First Peter three, where you know Sarah's obeying Abraham, even if he doesn't obey. The word, you know, she's setting her hope in God. I mean, the Lord will sustain um, women who whose husbands aren't aren't leading well. But I would just want guys, you know, to pursue joy in Christ at such a place that the overflow of that in their lives makes it such that their wives, you know, trust their leadership. Hmm. Yes. Not because they're perfect. Yes. Not at all. Yes. But if she can look at your life and say, this is a man who, on the main, the trajectory of his life is Godward, and I know he's not perfect, but... I can trust his leadership and come under his arm and his wing. And if he does sin along the way, I know he's going to repent, and we're going to work through that together. Yeah. Uh, that's what I want for my life, and I th- think that's the call of 1 Peter 3 and Ephesians 5. Obviously, the only perfect husband is Jesus. Right, right. Yep. Yeah, and, and I like that you said you should be the lead worshiper. That's, and that goes right along with what you've just said. If you are submitted to the Lord in your own life and you are displaying the godliness and holiness that scripture requires, then the woman will have, it would seem, less occasion to balk and to rebel and to say, who are you to tell me what to do? It's, it's very hard to look at somebody who is really bowed down before the Lord Jesus in his own life and, and say, I don't want to follow that. If she's a Christian, she's going to want to follow that. Well, I'm going to paint with a broad brush because I know every situation is different, but I, as a pastor, many, many times have encountered sisters in Christ of various ages um, that would essentially say, I I would love to be led, I, not in a heavy-handed way, but I would love for my husband to delight himself in the Lord and, and just sweep me up into his joy, you know, yeah. just... Totally. I'm, I'm kind of channeling C.S. Lewis here. I think it was in The Weight of Glory, but he was saying how we just, we naturally praise what we enjoy. And like for me in Minnesota, I love to go up to Duluth in the fall time because the colors are beautiful, but I don't want to go alone because right. my joy is not complete unless I can turn to my wife and say, do you see what I see and fold her into that. So I, I think a lot of women, uh, sisters in Christ, that they want to intuitively as believers, they want to be folded into their husband's joy in the Lord. And um, so that's, again, going back to kind of the beginning of the book is brothers set your heart to seek Christ and to delight in him. And out of the overflow of that, let it spill over into your family and your kiddos. Yes. Um, I, I, again, another quote from a Puritan that I can't think of who it was right now, but <laughs> one of those guys said, um, 
the thing I need most first thing in the morning is to get my soul happy in the Lord. Mm-hmm. Yes. So that's what I would tell guys too. Yes. Yeah. I read a lot of Puritans. I love the Puritans. I'm with you. It's hard. Yeah. You can't remember. Is it Burroughs? Is it Watson? I can't remember some of these. Yeah. I think it was Jeremiah Burroughs. I have a whole Puritans collection in my library. Neat. It's probably, it's too much for me to read. Um, but it looks really cool yeah. when people walk in and see the Puritans. <laughs> yes. I have, so. a similar, I have a similar collection. I have that problem. Have you read this? Have you read Baxter's directory? Well, not exactly, but I look things up from time to time. Uh, but that, yeah, you're exactly right. And you said something, I think, Aaron, which is really important because you referenced the fact that as you are dealing in a godly way with your wife, that has an overflow into your children's lives. So what you're really doing, it would seem, is when you are doing what you've talked about in terms of leading your wife and being a, a really godly example to her and caring about her and cherishing her and all the rest, that will have a good overflow into your children. I'm wondering how that might have played out in your own family. Have you seen those kinds of results as you've been doing this with Tanya? Oh, absolutely. Uh, two nights ago, we went on a date and I, I have a 15-year-old now, my oldest, my, own, my only daughter is 15. And so we have kind of a built-in babysitter, which is a whole new chapter, <laughs> yes. wonderful chapter yes. of life. Uh, but we were just going on a, on a quick date, the two of us. And the kids, they, they love it when we go out. I mean, they, they never complain when mom and dad go out for a date. But I always make sure I tell them, hey, guys, we love you, but we love you best when we love each other first. Hmm. And so I'm going to take your mama out and we're going to enjoy one another. and We're going to have dinner. Um, and it's not because I want to get away from you. You're not a burden to me. Um, but I, I will love you better as your daddy when I love your mama first and, and foremost in this relationship. And, and I think they know that intuitively. I think they realize because we've talked and I said, would you feel loved if me and mama if I didn't love mama, I didn't talk to her, I didn't kiss her in the kitchen and everything, but then I spent a lot of time with you guys, would you feel loved or safe? And they say, no. Hmm. I said, yeah, you know, you need, I need to love mama in such a way that you know that you're going to be cared for and that you're safe in this relationship because I'm trying to shepherd her. So as much as children can understand, they know that there's an overflow effect of trying to shepherd my wife in a God-honoring way that flows to them. Yeah, don't do it perfectly. Goodness knows. Yes, Um, they would try. Well, and they're watching you all the time too. And some of what you're doing, no doubt, will have an effect that will carry on with them into adulthood. And I'll remember, Dad, when you, you know, were kind to Mom and you took Mom out, and what kind of effect that relationship had on what I think about marriage. But I think, you know, again, something important to remember, and you've touched on this, is when Ephesians five twenty five talks about loving your wife the way Christ loved the church. You guys can't give up just because you're not Christ. You know, I think that sometimes there's a little bit of despair when men read that and say, well, I can't possibly love her the way Christ loves the church because he's perfect and he's holy. But that's not the point. The point is you're growing as you are, you know, maturing in Christ and he is conforming you to his image. This will happen over time that that there will be progress in that direction that will have really some wonderful effects on the rest of the family and i just commend the book to everybody it's called man up kneel down by j aaron white who's been kind enough to spend time with us aaron it was just wonderful to have a conversation with you about this very important subject and i just want to thank you again for being with us oh it's totally my pleasure thank you so much yeah you bet god bless you thank you so much aaron thanks for being with us here on janet meffer today and we will see you next time 
This hour has been brought to you by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. 